Welcome back to the Protectors Podcast. Today, a very special guest, Don Bentley, New York Times bestselling author, former FBI agent, and former Apache pilot. Uh, but first, I want to give a big shout out to Deliver Fund. I love Deliver Fund. They're doing great things. And right now, they are actually taking the war to the traffickers. They are fighting behind the scenes, and they're doing incredible work. So make sure you check out DeliverFund.org. So let's welcome Don. There he is. Hey, Jason. Don, how's it going? Big news since the last time you had you on, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 This is actually, I guess you are the, the first person I've talked to, the first important person I've talked to <laughs> since uh, we got the news last Wednesday. So, yeah, it was crazy, crazy, I, crazy, crazy. Um, without sanction, <laughs> I loved it. I'm right in the middle of um, the next one right now. And now I have another book. Target acquire. I have to watch. I have to read. Um, I don't know. You're doing great things, brother. Really great things. Thank you, man. It's been, uh, it's been, uh, man, the last three years have been crazy. And then the last, uh, I guess six months or so have been double that. And so I know you and I have, have kind of talked about this before, but just for, just for any of the new folks. So I spent, you know, 17 years writing books that nobody read. And then, then, 2018 was lucky enough to sell without sanction a two book deal. But when your first book gets bought, it takes about 18 to 24 months for it to come out. And so when it came out um, or right before it came out, I was writing. Yeah, right before it came out, I turned in the second book already because, again, it takes so long for the first one to come out, which was The Outside Man. And at the end of that, my editor, Tom Colgan, is also the editor for the Clancy series. And he asked me if I would uh, want to write in the Clancy series, which is an incredible honor. So fast forward this year, I turned in Target Acquire in February, The Outside Man book two and Matt Drake came out in March and then Target Acquired the first one of mine in the, in the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan Jr. came out two weeks ago. So it has been a wild 2020 to say the least or 2021 rather. I kid. <laughs> Only imagine, you know, like you said, 18 years, 18 years. It's not like yeah. you just picked up a pen one day and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to write a New York Times bestselling book. No, no. Um, I, I seriously, you know, without sanction, I've talked about it before. I've read it. It's like like a real book I've actually read. You know, sometimes I don't have time to read everything, but it's really good, man. And I like it. The protagonist, uh, Matt Drake, just Matt Drake. I like it, man. I like that. It's not like this super secret. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, he's super secret, but not like this, like, like yeah. really way beyond. But the reason we're going to, we're having on today is talk about Target Acquired. And yes. we're going to do a little bit of something different today. We are going to talk about what is a day in the life of a New York Times bestselling <laughs> author. Like, I mean, it, it, it's in man. I'm like fascinated by this graphic right now. Look at look at the <laughs> look at the shot groups clicking in right there, all over the place. Um, so I have to say that I have been a a New York Times bestselling author for all of a week, uh, or not, not quite a week. We found out last Wednesday. This is again for for newbies. You know, you may have already known this. I didn't. Is that they update the list every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, and so the um, 
I was waiting on Wednesday to see if, if it would hit or not. And my editor actually called me at three and I was like, well, it can't be that call because it isn't seven yet, but I guess the editors get a advanced copy. And so he told me, which was incredible. And so I wish I could say I have, I have all this experience living a day in the life as, as a New York times bestselling author, but it's not even a week old yet. Having said that, like you and I were talking about before we started taping, I've been so I like most writers, I had a day job. And then um, when I got the opportunity to write Target Acquired, I had a day job and I was writing two books a year, which was a little bit much. And so um, I just now had the opportunity. Uh, actually, last week was my first um, or my last uh, week at, at my day job. So now I am officially a writer every day, which means I sleep till noon and think about books and then you know, just, just kind of scribble down some words and then go back and, and take another nap during the day. And, and actually that's not true at all. Right now I have the third book in my Matt Drake series, which is called Hostile Intent is due in just about three weeks. It's due on the 15th of July. And so right now my day starts, I still get up uh, pretty early and get up about 5.30 or so and do a blocker writing until about 10 or so. And then I do kind of the the glamorous non-writing tasks um, of being a writer, like updating your website and responding to emails and doing all the other crazy stuff that isn't actually writing. And then I do a second chunk of writing in the afternoon. And then uh, and then I, I try and get a workout in or something like that. And then I have another spot of writing in, in the evening that I'll sometimes do as well. So hopefully um, once... I'm, like I said, I'm kind of behind on this book right now because I was doing the day job at the same time. I'm hoping that for my next book, which which I think hopefully will be a Jack Ryan Jr. book, um, I can get to something a little more manageable. But that's it right now. Just writing, sleep, and writing. It's, it's very, very glamorous. <laughs> now, writing and getting into the character's head, because you're, you're working on, I mean, if you get another Jack Ryan Jr. book, you're going to be working on mm -hmm. two protagonists kind of at the same time. What is your writing yeah. process like during the day? And does it change each day or is it just kind of like I sit down on my keyboard, I look at it and all of a sudden it starts flowing? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that, that's a great question because I think a lot of, um, for me, um, when people talk about writer's block or um, just trouble writing in general, for me, that usually happens when I don't know enough about the story, about some aspect of the story. And so this weekend's a great example where I had, I had planned that I was going to crank out, you know, a couple thousand words a day this weekend. And what I spent seemed like most of my time doing is I, I should take you over and show you the dining room table. And it's all just note cards scattered across the dining room table. And I spent a lot of time in this position right here, surrounded by note cards, hoping that they would speak to me and I'd figure out where the book would need to go or, or the part of the book that I'm stuck on. And so if I can, if I'm disciplined in the night before, I can, I can, you know, come up with some notes or something like that about the scene that I'm going to write starting early the next morning or maybe start the scene so you get the juices flowing. And it goes a lot faster. And I, and I try and write um, – when I was writing a day – or when I was doing a day job at the same time and I had much, much less writing um, time allotted in my day, what I started figuring out is that I could – I could write between 250 or 500 words pretty easily. Like that's usually when I start getting stuck is right at that point. 
And so what I started doing throughout my day is I would in the morning, I'd say, you know, hey, during the week, I'm just going to try and get 500 words a day or, or something like that. And so in the morning, before I started my day job, I would just write and see how many words I could get. And usually I could get pretty close to 500 just in that one set, you know, between 250 and 500. And then I do the same thing at night. And then, you know, once you start combining those and, and then they, and they pile on top of each other, you have that bigger word count. And so that's, I've tried to do the same thing. Um, a, a good friend of mine and, and a fantastic writer um, is a guy named Mark Graney, who does the gray man and did a bunch of Tom Clancy books. And I remember him saying that he does about 2000 words a day. And so I started I was like, I got to work at least as hard as Mark Graney does if I'm a full-time writer. And so I started with that in mind as kind of my target, but I still break that down. And so the first for me in the morning, you know, when I'm fresh and it's early and, and I don't have anything else to distract me, that first thousand words or so comes pretty easily. And then the next thousand words usually has to get broken up over a couple of different writing um, writing, you know, sprints or something, if you will. But again, it it seems to work better for me if I do a little planning beforehand and figure out what needs to happen and why. If I just if I just try and say sit down on my computer cold and say, okay, what am I going to write today? It usually doesn't end well. <laughs> now the transition from you know having a day job, you've had a lot of yeah. really cool jobs. I really have to tell you that <laughs> FBI agent, Apache pilot, um, writer, yeah. Yeah. Intel, all sorts of cool stuff. And writing, your passion, doing that as a full-time job, mm -hmm. yeah, it's scary. Uh, but once you get over this hump, you've already checked off one of the biggest <sighs> things you could possibly ever imagine is New York Times bestselling author, yeah. Don, you know? And I can say now that I've, I've met that guy in person, you know? It's really, <laughs> it's really cool, man. Um, you're the first author I think I've actually seen in person and went to a, like a book signing. So that's really oh, cool. That's cool. That was cool. Yeah, man. Get, yeah, that was for the without sanction back to it. Like in, uh, I think one of pre -COVID, the last yeah. events. Yeah, yeah Virginia, I think it was. One of the last pre-COVID. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you bring up, I, I love this thriller generation. I'm looking forward to having your book on uh, the new Protectors Book Club. I'm excited to have that cool. uh, launched this past cool. few weeks. Is uh is books? We love books. It's something about our generation. Is like mm -hmm. this thriller generation. It's just really cool books out there, man. We didn't have these when I was a kid. It was like ninjas and like you know Rambo books. But now it's like it's really cool, man. But you know, going back to one of your jobs, and that's one thing I want to talk about today. Like transition completely from the writing, mm -hmm. world. and now yep. you're back in. You're in the army. You're an Apache yep. pilot, which. Hands down, if if you're going to be a pilot, I think that's the way to go. You know, that's just me. And we know you ha you had you did a lot, but just what is a normal day, like a normal yeah. day when it comes to like you know in Conus and O Conus? Sure, and I'll say it is that is one of the I think the coolest jobs in the world to have. It's 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 hard to have a bad day when you're flying Apaches, and in fact, they one of the coolest things about the Apaches you wear. When you're a pilot, you wear what's called this helmet display unit. So it's this little monocle that slides over your eye. And you use that as you turn your head. The sensor follows your head. And so you fly at nighttime through that one eye um, via the sensor that sits on the, on the nose of the helicopter. And then the other cool thing that it does is the 30-millimeter cannon that hangs below the, 
the nose as well. If you have that slaved to your eye, everywhere you look, the 30 millimeter cannon follows and then you just squeeze the trigger and, and bad things go away, which is, which is incredible. And so I'll start with the, the not as exciting one first. So in, in CONUS or in, in the, when you're not deployed, the way pilots work in, in the army, it's different from any other services that there's two groups of pilots, if you will, there's what are called warrant officers and then commissioned officers. And so in the army, the majority of pilots are warrant officers. And so those are the, the guys and girls who full-time job is to be a pilot. And when you're a warrant officer, there's three or four different specialties. Um, you start your, what's called a W1 and uh, you're, you're, you know, we call them Peter pilots. Just that's your, it's your sole job is to be a pilot and to get very familiar with your aircraft and, and become an expert on it. And then usually about the time you make CW2, which is, I think it's about two years, two between two and four years after you um, come out of warrant officer school, you start to branch off into a specialization. And so the specializations can be what's called an IP or an instructor pilot, a MTP or a maintenance test pilot, a uh, safety officer, a TAC ops officer, or, and I'm sure there's, there's another one I'm missing too. And so those then branch off and that's kind of your specialization. So if you're an instructor pilot, what your, your, your job is, is to progress the new pilots that are coming into um, the organization, be kind of the standard bearer for it. You give check rides, you do all of that stuff. If you're a maintenance test pilot, then your job is when aircrafts go down and they go down frequently. What I mean by that is from a maintenance perspective, they go down and have to be fixed. The maintenance test pilot, he or she is that is kind of the head maintenance person at the company or troop. And then when when they do um, fixes the helicopters, they fly them and get them signed off and so on. So a whole bunch of different jobs. If you're what's called a commissioned officer, which means you've gone to ROTC or the military academy or OCS, your career path is a little bit different. And so you go through flight school um, just like a warrant officer does after he or she comes out of warrant officer candidate school. But then you um, are the are the leader. You, your job is to when you're a lieutenant, you're a platoon leader, and then you go off and do. And when you're a platoon leader, you fly all the time. It's your job in in a in a Apache um, company or troop, or at least the way it used to be. There are eight aircraft and two platoon leaders, and so each platoon leader he or she has four different aircraft. So when I was my first assignment out of flight school was Korea. I was in one uh, six cavalry. And so I was started out as the um, as the back platoon leader, and then you progress to the scout platoon leader, which is normally the more senior one in the troop. And so you have four aircraft um, that are yours, and then half the enlisted folks who are the mechanics and such, and then half the pilots. And so you do that while you're a platoon leader, and then once you do your year, two years of platoon leader time, you rotate out to a staff job, and you don't fly as much anymore. You're either usually an assistant S3, like an operations officer, or you're, you know, one of the staff in the military, the staff all start with an S at the battalion level. So it could be the intelligence um, officer, which is the S2 or the logistician. There's a beautiful Apache right there. Um, and so those are the jobs you do until about the four or five year mark when it's your turn to, to cycle back and be a company commander. And so then when you're a company commander, you fly um, all the time again. And then when you're a major, you rotate back off and you do staff jobs. And then when you're a lieutenant colonel, you come back again as, as a battalion commander or squadron commander, if it's a cavalry 
uh, unit. And so those are kind of the differences between the two. So when you're in um, like a platoon leader or company commander position, you usually fly about once or twice um, a week, depending on the hours and stuff that you have. And then there's all kinds of administrative stuff that the military invents for you to do uh, when you're not flying. When you're deployed, it's completely different. And there's a distinction in, for pilots, and it's something that's called being a pilot in command. And so in the Apache, you sit one behind the other in the front seater, or the the, the technical term is the CPG, the co-pilot gunner. We always call them the front seater. And then the back seater is um, the person who sits in the second seat. And, and usually, uh, or in the old alpha model Apache helicopters, the seats were so different in that the controls were so different between the two that you were usually assigned one seat or another. And so the more junior pilot um, usually sat in the front and the more senior pilot who was the pilot in command sat in the back. And sometimes you would have folks who were called dual seaters who could move from one to another, but that was really um, the exception rather than the norm. The Longbow and now the Guardian, which is the next generation Apache, is much more advanced. It's a completely digital cockpit. And so you can configure your own cockpit to be, there's what that are called pages, these multi-purpose displays that have pages. And so I can set up my cockpit how I want and you can set up yours. And so the difference between the seats becomes uh, much smaller. And so it's much more common for people to be dual seated. And so the distinction still is who is the pilot in command. And so pilot in command is something that every pilot kind of strives for. And it's something that you spend a lot of time getting experience and studying for. And um, when you're ready, you have to be recommended um, to take your pilot in command ride. And then you, you take it usually with um, the squadron or, or battalion, the chief um, instructor pilot there. And it's very, very rigorous. When I took mine, uh, it was right right while we were at Fort Hood before we deployed to Germany and then went to Afghanistan. It was a couple hour uh, oral examination first and then, you know, a three or four hour flight where you're where you're happy. You're not only displaying your skill as a pilot, but it's also heavily, heavily slotted towards your decision making criteria because because you're going to be given, you know, responsibility for this helicopter. And so they put you in all kinds of crazy scenarios and just to see how how mature you are whether you can wiggle the sticks, you know, when you, whether you know what your limitations are as a pilot or not. And so because um, I was fortunate enough, my, my best friend was, was a troop com commander in what's called a line troop. And so he had the helicopters. I was a troop commander in what's called support troop. And so when we went to Afghanistan, I became um, one of his backup pilots. And so, and so what would happen is there are three different types of missions that you you fly in Afghanistan or you did, you know, 15 years ago when I was there. And it is a um, QRF mission or a quick reactionary force mission, which your job is to, you know, you carry around a handheld radio. And for a 12 hour shift, if you get a call on that radio, you have to be airborne within 30 minutes. And so those those missions could be everything from. Uh, very benign, like a general needs to go from from Kabul, Kabul to Jabat or something like that, and you're going to provide escort to. There's a medevac that is taken off, and and they need an escort to. There's what's called a tick or a troops in contact, and they need gunships, and so it's very much could be anything and everything, or it could be nothing, and and you could spend 12 hours and never get a launch at all. And so that's one mission. 
Second mission is what's called ring route support. So in Afghanistan, much of the people, gear, supplies moved by helicopter because of the ruggedness of terrain and the the dangers associated with IEDs. And so that stuff was carried in in either Blackhawk or Chinook helicopters. And so you as the Apache helicopter pilot would be the escort for them. And so it could be a, you know, a six or eight hour mission where you're just literally going from um, fob to fob and, and escorting a Black Hawk or Chinook. And then the final kind of mission is what's called a direct action mission, where there's a, a, a unit on the ground. It could be in, in Bagram. A lot of times we supported the SEALs because they're, they're organic uh, fire support aircraft are usually the 160th and the 160th didn't have little birds or armed apps or anything there. And so we as Apaches um, picked up that mission for them. It could be, you know, normal infantry um, folks that are out, that are going to go do a raid on a village. And so you'd be the gunship support for them or anything in between. And so that's the third type of mission. And that one obviously is the much um, more exciting one where you do a whole bunch of mission planning beforehand. You do coordinations with the ground, you do rehearsals, and then you go execute it. And so that one is kind of on the left side of, of the azimuth, if you will, for the amount of coordination and prep time and everything you do beforehand versus on the total right hand side are the, the QRF missions where most of the time you literally have no idea what you're going to be doing until you go do it. And so that's kind of what uh, the three different missions um, look like in uh, day an Apache pilot. How about that? That is exactly what I was looking for. (laughs) The thing about like your background and writing the books is you see it in the details in a paragraph. You could tell someone who doesn't have either the background or they don't do the adequate research. And those books really don't go that far. Um, Fortunately, everybody that's been on the show, um, really world-class authors, all of them. Uh, some of them don't have that uh, that big old caveat of New York Times bestselling author, no, <laughs> but a lot of them will be. And yeah. and I love I love following your journey, and I I love seeing what you're doing because it's really cool Thanks, to man. see you come out with the Matt Drake, and then all of a sudden now you're you're doing Jack Ryan Jr. Yeah. And uh, we really need to pull up that graphic again because I, I don't even know what I did with it, but that was really cool. <laughs> um, I was trying to pull up some of Pat. To, while we were doing it and uh it wasn't so we we got the apaches in there so that was kind of <laughs> cool so yeah man uh doing great things brother and as usual I, I love promoting anything you're doing looking forward to seeing what happens next with matt drake and jack ryan jr i know we're here to promote jack ryan jr but <laughs> you know uh, i really you know i like the whole jack ryan series and i'll always have yeah yeah and, yeah uh, yeah as soon as I get through my next two books, I'll I'll read that one. Nice, nice. Really looking forward to it, man. Looking forward to having Thank you talk you, to everybody out there. If you are into books and you're into, especially books like Don has, uh, join the Protectors Book Club. Don's books will guarantee be part of the selection coming up in the next couple months. Right awesome. now, um, let's see if we could pull up this graphic here. There it is. Target acquired is out nice. now. And yep. it is it's it's up there. It's in the top of the charts. Don, I appreciate you coming on the show, brother. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me, man.